Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. How's the uh, silent auction items there going for you? Uh, well, I'm waiting for you to bid so that I can outbid you. You motherfucker. Coming to you almost live from the 2015 Pure Speculation Festival, this is The Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. And we are your there and back again hosts. It's true. We were, so you probably know if you've listened to the show, that we've been at Pure Spec a few times. A couple times. We're often invited to interview, uh, usually the author, guest of honor for Mm -hmm. the year. Now this year, of course... We'd already interviewed the author guest of honor a couple times because it's Minister Faust. Oh yeah, and uh, so they asked us to interview the artist guests of honor. Yes, but in a different capacity than usual, as guests of honor ourselves. That's right. So uh, a little later on in this episode, we're going to be talking to uh, two artists, yeah, Mike Sass and Jim Beveridge. Yep who are the artist guests of honor at Peerspec this year. Yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun chatting with them about their experiences. Uh, we are actually holed up right now in the Peerspec Festival office. Yes, cuz it was the quietest place we could find. But it's still, you know, there's fans going, there's beeping, there's a, a sexy lady looking at her phone sitting over there. Yeah. Sexily. So uh, there there might be a little bit of more ambient noise than usual. We're slumming it. Because we are indeed kind of slumming. We are sort of, well, I mean, so. that's that's terrible. This we, is, we hadn't initially intended to record in the in the main area. Yes. And and be all public and, and let people see the magic happen. But there's a kendo demonstration going on right now that was very loud. Yeah. And so that was just not going to happen. And not only that, but I think we probably would have been disruptive of the kendo ourselves. Indeed. It would not have been, would not have been a great situation. No. But here we are for you together. Holding hands and not wearing pants. Now, timeline-wise, also, this is a little weird. Um, we do our show every two weeks. That's right. Uh, because we're lazy. and uh, <laughs> that, is, that is, in fact, why. Yes. And uh, this episode is actually being recorded just a week after our previous episode. Yeah. So we're recording it a week early, which puts us in a weird time zone for recording for you because you're not listening to events of kind of the week before you listen to it. Now you're listening to events that happened weeks ago. But I will say this. It's been a hell of a ride these last weeks and a half. Yes. Sort of. Our last episode, we were recording just before the federal election. And now we're recording just after it. That's basically true. So at the time of this recording, we've had to deal with the reality, and if you could see me, there would be air quotes everywhere, of having a Trudeau as our prime minister again. 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 The younger the younger Trudeau, younger than his deceased father. Correct. But older than all of his brothers. Also correct. Uh, is moving back home. <laughs> kind of. Which is, it's one of the ways that the, the news media seems to be putting it is Justin Trudeau's moving back home to 24 Sussex Drive, where he was very nearly born, by the way. Uh, on the way to the, on the way to Pure Spec today, I was listening to the radio, and um, apparently uh, in Ottawa in 1971, when Justin Trudeau was born on Christmas Day, the policy was the father could not be in the delivery room at the same, when, when, sh- when shit was going down. Um, that is no longer the case, of course, but, uh, Maggie Trudeau said to the doctors at the Ottawa uh, hospital, if you don't allow my husband in the delivery room, this child will be delivered in the residence of the prime minister. And so the board of the hospital got together very quickly, changed a policy. And Justin Trudeau was born on Christmas day in a hospital in Ottawa with his dad present. So there you go. Interesting little bit of uh, trivia there. It's, and it goes to show that sometimes when you're the prime minister, you or even the prime minister's wife, you can throw your weight around a little bit. She was she was, and continues to be an exceptional, exceptional woman, I think. Uh, I'm a big fan of Maggie Trudeau. So uh, uh, I, as I recall, in our last episode, we were projecting a liberal minority. Yeah. And how wrong we were. Oh, and it's so, so good to be wrong, I have to say. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I mean... 
after we we stopped recording, you and I yelled at each other for a little while longer in agreement about the way we actually wanted things to go. I think it's safe to say that neither of us is disappointed with the result. Uh, that is safe to say. Yeah. Maybe not the the ideal result for everybody yeah. in Canada, but uh, I think the, well, based on the votes, the majority of Canadians would find it to be an inoffensive result. Yeah. And I mean, you know, so so Trudeau has, he's, he hasn't been sworn in yet. Correct. He's at, the, at the time of this recording. recording yeah. He's, he's the prime minister designate. Mm-hmm. Um, because Stephen Harper remains prime minister until he isn't. That's right. Because when the writ drops and uh, Parliament is dissolved, there are no sitting MPs, but the cabinet and the prime minister remain, yep. the, the prime minister and all of his ministers, because the function of government, of government needs to continue while the election is going on. So the, the hilarious thing is by the time this podcast comes out, uh, Prime Minister-designate Trudeau will have selected his cabinet. His, his goal is to have that uh, all lined up for November 4th. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's going on between the time of this recording and when it's actually being released. So you will know more than we do at the time of this recording. And you'll, presumably you'll, future us will also know more. Exactly. You'll know more than podcasts, Scott and Adam. But uh, In but, the past. That's right. Yeah. It's all very wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey yeah. sort of things. Um, at the, the, the other interesting thing is that, by the time you hear this, Alberta, the province of Alberta will have a budget. That is also true. A long-awaited budget. And the, the the thought for most people is that it's going to include a lot of infrastructure spending, mm-hmm. a lot of stimulus mm-hmm. at a time when, you know, other provincial and global governments are, are taking a more austere uh, path. Exactly. Um, there's something to be said about spending in a recession because that helps create jobs. Not only that, but the cost of labor is lower and the cost of materials sometimes also is lower. Yeah. So you're, you're driving the economy a little bit well, instead about just cutting back on everything. Now, of course, the fear is increased debt, increased deficits. Um, but which is the trade-off that is the trade-off. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you're a good fiscal manager, you've got, you should know the answer to the, to that challenge. At least you'd be able to forecast when you can fix that problem. Um, so anyway, the point is, uh, we have a very interesting government makeup when you consider Edmonton, when you consider the, the province of Alberta, and the fine Dominion of Canada. It's uh, an interesting time to be living in Edmonton. Yeah, I'll put it that way. Yeah, I, the, my favorite thing, my favorite tweet that I saw on election night, and I think it was like stolen and duplicated by many, was that Stephen Harper now lives in a city where his mayor is Nahed Nenshi, uh, the premier is Rachel Notley, and the prime minister is Justin Trudeau. Yep. So, uh, I'm sorry, Stephen. Just try. Who to... obviously listens to our podcast, because why yeah. wouldn't he? I mean, we know that, that people at, at the parliament building download the show. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, of course. <laughs> now, now here's, here's, another, here's another thing that the election means for Edmonton. It means that Edmonton uh, has lost... One of, uh, one of its great city councillors. Uh, potentially. That's right. Now, at the time that we're recording this, uh, Amarjeet Sohi is the MP-elect for Edmonton Millwoods, but it was by a fairly narrow margin. Was it 80, 80 or 79, 79 votes? 79 votes. Wow. Now, um, in order for there to be an automatic judicial recount of a vote in a federal election in Canada, there must be a difference between first and second place of one one-thousandth of the votes that were cast. Edmonton Millwoods, there were around 49,500 votes, which means that there would have to have been 49 votes difference for there to be an automatic recount. There were more than that, yeah. so there's not an automatic recount. But uh, any candidate in any election can request a judicial recount yep. for uh, a small deposit, a reasonable deposit. It's not exactly small, but... Uh, well, they're probably paying for the labor involved. Yeah, and, and they can ask for that up to four days after the validation. The validation right. happened the week prior to our recording, and Tim Upple, who was the narrow second place, and the uh, and the, the sitting MP, the um, uh, incumbent... Sort of, because the lines were because redrawn. The, but, he but, was, but he was an incumbent MP. That's right, yeah. Um, has requested the judicial recount, which will happen the week 
after we're recording. So uh, we don't know. No, we just don't know. But presumably, uh, this will result in Amarjeet Sohi still eking out a, a small victory, one would presume. Let's hope. 79 votes is... is all. It's a lot of votes. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a lot of votes in the grand scheme of things, but it's it's 79 votes. It's enough. It's enough to do the, the job, right? And it, it's not impossible that Tim Upple will somehow find 80 votes or 79 of – or 80 of Amarjeet's will be decided to be invalid somehow. Not impossible, but – Probably unlikely. Right. So now, in the, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but in the case of a judicial recount, if if um, this this is going to happen over the period of three days, mm-hmm. and I assume that some officer of the court will be present. To, I believe a judge to oversee, actually, it. hence judicial recount. Right. Yeah. Now, it doesn't matter the span of votes between the two. If if so, he is one vote ahead of Tim Upple. At the end of the judicial recount. That's it? That's it. That's the ball game. Yeah. So so hopefully, we're hopeful. I mean, so in a way, let's, so Amarjeet Sohi, let's say he, he passes the judicial recount, he's an MP. Mm-hmm. It's not great for Edmonton City Council. Because Amarjeet Sohi was a very active participant in City Council. A terrific counselor, I would say. I would, I would argue. He's one of my top two. Top three. Yeah. Top four. He's, he's somewhere at the top. <laughs> but so bad at the civic level, uh, arguably for Edmonton, potentially very good federally because I believe now we've got two liberal MPs elected in Edmonton. Randy Boissonneau was the second one yep. in Edmonton Center. Uh, Kent Hare in Calgary Center mm-hmm. uh, won as a liberal MP and former he, uh, former MLA. Yeah, yeah, for the Liberals, and then uh, Darshan Kang. Uh, whose writing I, it escapes me right now, also won in Calgary. Mm-hmm. So we've got, and that's like, I don't think that's happened in Calgary since the 1960s. No, they were quite, uh, a lot of the pundits on election night were quite surprised that the liberals had done comparatively so well in uh, urban Alberta yeah. with four elected MPs, yeah. which is, I think, unprecedented. And the the notion that, that we're hearing from, from some commentators is that... Uh, one of the cities of Alberta, if not both, will have some kind of cabinet representation. And uh, Emerjeet, so he would be a good choice. Yeah, I mean, because I, of his years of of uh, civic government. Yeah, I mean, he's he knows how Roberts' rules work. He knows mm-hmm. how to he knows how to be a, an effective politician. That isn't to say that that Randy Boissonneau or, or Kent Hare or Darshan Kang don't know how to do that either. But uh, I mean, any one of those guys getting a cabinet position would, would be, be great for Alberta. Yeah, it would be great for for Alberta and for Alberta's cities. So it's going to be that's going to be an interesting thing. The, the other thing that was interesting, and I, I'm not sure, Scott, if you were uh, at work during the election night when the results were coming out. I was not. Okay, somebody so, has to read the news in the morning. That's oh, there you go. Yeah. So well, you that's very that must have been exciting. Anyway, kind of. That's 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 a cool part of your job is that you get to sort of be the guy who delivers the thing to the people who need that thing. Pretty much. And in the case of election, very exciting. So were you watching the results come in on election night? Uh, I was certainly following it on social media. Right. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting how, how quickly they were declaring that it was a liberal government. Well, one of the things that they did for the first time ever that we're not usually uh, privy to during election nights is... As the results in Atlantic Canada came in, they were showing them. Which, uh, usually there's a media blackout until BC's polls close. That's right. But they decided not to do that this year. And, and there's been some speculation uh, that I've seen. I couldn't, I couldn't attribute it to anyone in particular at this, this exact moment. But there's been some speculation that the results, the strong liberal result in Atlantic Canada had an influence on the rest of, of people's votes. Possible? Maybe. I don't know. I just don't, I don't feel like a lot of people are sitting there watching, listening to the news or watching the results come in and go, okay, well, now I have to go out there and vote liberal. Well, and it also presumes that everybody was voting last minute. Which they weren't. No. We that, had an unprecedented number of people vote in advanced polls. And not only the advanced polls, but I mean, the polls are open at 7.30 a.m. Yeah. They're open for 12 hours. And most people probably go at some point during the day rather than waiting until after work. Yeah, you never know, right? I mean, uh, your employer is supposed to give you uh, three hours off to go vote to make sure that you yeah. you do. So, uh, We also had a high voter turnout. 
the highest it's been in a very long time. I want to say it was like 64. Yeah. 60, maybe as high as 69 in some places. And I think that's the highest it's been since 1993 or something like uh, that. People were really uh, excited to get out and uh, and vote this year. And I think that there was a real feeling that change was in the air. I agree. I think. Yeah. And um, in previous elections, uh, voter turnout's been pretty low. I think that disenfranchisement has felt really high, like, ah, my vote doesn't really matter. Yeah. But I think that the message really got out, both from the Trudeau camp and from the Mulcair camp, uh, that you needed to get out and vote this election and that your vote mattered. And I think that that really made a lot of people... Um, feel like they like they could enact a little bit of change. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, as much as, as the the Conservative Party tried to make this election about the economy and jobs, it turned into something very different, as as we discussed on our last show. So yeah. so it's uh, and you know what's the other thing that's been really interesting about the result is watching the international news media uh, fawn over Prime Minister Trudeau. Who is a handsome man. A handsome man, a young man, and he's, he's 43 years old. He's actually not that much younger than Harper was when he was first elected. Is that right? Actually. Harper was that. in his uh, like late 40s, I believe. He, yeah. he, was, he wasn't that much older than Trudeau. Yeah, and, and so, but that makes Justin Trudeau the second youngest prime minister to be elected. Yes. I can't remember who the first one is. But, uh, well, they're probably not around anymore. One would presume. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that has come up as a result of, of uh, Justin Trudeau's election is, you know, the objectification of the prime minister as a handsome, sexy man. Um, you know, there's, a, there's been a lot of ink spilled about whether or not there's this double standard when it comes to talking about looks of male politicians versus female politicians. Well, on the one hand, what a politician looks like really doesn't matter. No. At all. Whether they are a man or a woman. Yeah. Not in the slightest. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. Maybe there is a point to be made because um, I'm collecting my thoughts. It's, it's, Bear with me for a moment. It's tough to say while, while you're thinking about the, that. Well, the, I think that part of the part of the issue is that when uh, people talk about the looks or the the dress of a female politician, they're often they're often demeaning. Oh, almost always. Her, yeah, and and um, undermining her skill as a politician or as a statesperson. Or or bureaucrat or whatever by by objectifying her. Whereas with uh, with a male politician, I don't know. It seems like like they're talking more about how the looks are adding to his charm. Yeah, and and it's less it's less demeaning. It's less patronizing. It's less talking down to them. But which which like only serves to illustrate and underline the fact that there's still this ridiculous double standard. When it kind of yeah. But uh, you know what? I will say this. Um, I, you wouldn't probably, generally speaking, see a lot of female politicians pose uh, the way that Justin Trudeau posed for his charity boxing match with Patrick Brazo. Fair enough. So, in a sense, and I know how this is going to sound, he put himself out there. Hmm. But having said that, he didn't win the election because he's a handsome man. No. He won it for a variety of reasons, not the least of which includes the fact that liberal policies are more aligned with the sort of zeitgeist in Canada. At least at present. For now. Yeah. But but um, uh, that is not to say, I'm not saying he's asking for it, because that's ridiculous. But I mean, but but again, he's got the privilege to, because he's a handsome white male that no one's ever going to criticize, to be able to do that sort of things. And it just, it does underscore Kinda. the double standard. And... Uh, the reason he's willing to put himself out like uh, put himself out there like that is because he's a little goofy. I'm he is say. a little goofy. He's he's got a sense of humor and he's confident in himself. Yeah, and that that gives him the uh, the confidence to be able to go out there and and pose for a silly picture. Yeah, or just chat with people on the street, which uh, gives him, I think, a level of approachability that certainly the previous prime minister. Did not have. Not even remotely. Not even remotely. My my hope is that Justin Trudeau turns out to be the sort of politician who is cut from the same cloth as as Nahed Nenshi and Don Iveson. That he's a little 
that he he takes his work seriously, no question, but that he's accessible, he's playful. I mean, the day after the election, he was hanging out in the streets of Montreal, greeting people in the morning. And thanking them for voting. I mean, it was, you know, it's different. It, it represents a, a, a step change in, in the kinds of... The kind of leadership we've had in Ottawa, which I'm very excited about. So, so we'll have to wait and see what, yeah, I mean, what comes in the next four years. There's a definite if it's a disaster, yeah. then uh, you know what? The beauty of, of our democracy is that we can uh, vote them out next election. That's right. And if they follow through on promised election reforms, we will not even have our current election system next election. It's true. It'll be a representational system. But enough about politics. Uh, we're going to get to our interview with uh, Mike Sass and Jim Beveridge. It was, uh, they were just a pleasure to speak with. Sorry. They were a pleasure to speak with. <laughs> we'll have them in just a moment. So Scott and I have the uh, the great fortune once again to be interviewing guests of honor at PeerSpec. And this time as guests of honor at yeah. PeerSpec, which is kind of a double whammy. It's a little unusual for us, but yeah. here we are uh, with Jim Beveridge, one of our artist guests of honor, and Mike Sass, our other artist guest of honor. How's it going, you guys? Welcome to the show, fellas. Hey, good evening. Or afternoon or morning, whatever time you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sometime in the future. Sometime in the future. Hello. We're um, back here. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks for being at Pure Spec. Um, why don't we start by just sort of, I'd be very curious to know how you even got into doing artwork as a job at all. Now, we've read your bios. We know that, you know, you've, you've been at it for a while. But how do you even get into it being a commercial thing? Starting with you, Mike. Um, well, I think it's kind of the goal for anybody that goes to art school. You know, you... You pay your money, you spend four years and get taught a little bit, and the goal is to get a job and have a career. So I went to the Alberta College of Art and Design in Calgary, and uh, when that was done, um, that would have been 1995, uh, I worked at Rocky Mountain Books for a number of months. It was a small publisher down there, basically color correcting photos of... Uh, bed and breakfasts <laughs> for their guidebooks of mountain vacations. And uh, so wait, in those moments, you're thinking, why the hell did I go to art school for this? Or I'm thinking that's like the closest thing to an art job that I happened to be able to get at that time. Yeah. Um, the school was a mix of graphic design and illustration. Um, so, and at this point, point 1995 the industry was completely different than it is now you know pre-internet pre-digital art pre-computers so you know we were trained to do graphic design layout logos whatever you know a cross-section of graphical jobs uh so you know doing layout and uh, design for a book publisher was the closest thing i could do and Actually, before that, I worked at the Calgary Herald for the summer doing news graphics and uh, illustration. Um, so, you know, you're just sort of putting your resume out there and trying to get whatever you can get. It's part of the, uh, the process of moving up in the ranks. But again, when you're a student, you don't really know anything when you graduate. Even with an education, you're coming out... Um, with just a handful of assignments that you happen to have just dabbled in. Your first try at airbrush, your first try at charcoal, your first try at paint. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not a specialist in anything, um, so you can't be too picky. Yeah. Um, but then uh, I had friends who knew guys that were starting uh, to make a video game in Calgary. Uh, the company was called Pyrotech, and uh, my two friends did a little bit of art jobs for these guys. And my friends were a year behind me in college, so they had to go back for their third, fourth year. And I had graduated, so they said, why don't you apply here? So I applied, uh, got the job. I mean, this was pretty much in 1995. Anybody with any sort of rudimentary computer knowledge could get a job in video games. Like, you didn't, 
there was nobody with more experience than like zero that was like ground up right uh, the guys making the game this was their first game they just needed an art guy to do art stuff so i got that job and uh that company was rolled into what became bioware and i moved up to edmonton to finish the game we were working on called shattered steel and so i was essentially bioware's first artist in 1995 and you know, I with shattered steel, it's in the shelf somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For its time, it was a well-received game. It was you know one of the only one of the few 3D games at that time. Most games were sprite-based, uh, 2D, flat games, and uh, this was a, a 3D game engine. Yeah, it got me going. Mm. It was it's a mech warrior type game, large robots walking around in three-dimensional terrain, shooting each other. Uh, so I was kind of the only artist, so I did everything. I did storyboarding, concepting stuff, started to learn some 3D. Um, so all self-taught, all learned just on the job. Cool. Um, and then, you know, as Bioware developed more projects, bigger projects, you know, my experience just grew with the opportunities and, uh, and here I am. Yeah. So what about you, Jim? How do you start out uh, doing what you do and, and arrive at, to where we are today? Totally the opposite of Mike. Uh, in high school, uh, I was for a summer job. I worked. Uh, I did uh, watercolor portraits at an amusement park. Um, I was trained under a, a fellow from Disneyland to do standardized watercolor portraits. I didn't fit that mold very well. I <laughs> did everything. Uh, um, I made people realistic, right? Okay. Without trying to standardize noses, mouths you know, eyes or whatever. And I did actually quite well there. And uh, then I went after high school. My high school is oriented towards uh, science, uh, advanced physics, chemistry. So I went to, was going to get a science degree and perhaps go on to be an architect. Ooh. Uh, I have one in the family. So I figured, well, I'll try that. And after a year, a year of science uh, the, with a physics professor that made Ben Stein look like, uh, look exciting. Yeah. Um, I switched to a year of fine arts, um, and I met a bunch of, I uh, went to Toronto, met a bunch of, of, of uh, artists up there, comic artists, hung out at uh, some of the comic stores, went to my first convention, and then came back and I went, and then I did my art year. And after that, I wasn't too impressed with the program, <laughs> so I dropped out of that one. And then uh, a fellow, a friend of mine from high school, I ran into a, in a tavern, said, I know a fellow that needs someone to paint pictures on motorcycles. Well, I, at that time, I'd taken a paintbrush and painted a mural on a friend of mine's tank with enamel paints. Mm -hmm. uh, and I took that over to the, the shop where this fellow needed an artist. And he looked at it and he went, that's not how we do it. There's an airbrush. <laughs> so I you go, had to oh. learn. Pardon? You had to learn. So, yeah. So I picked up the airbrush and about... An hour or two later, after playing with it, I had my first job, and it was, uh, I think it was a couple of hands with branches coming out of them on a black tank, and then I started uh, doing a few uh, fantasy pieces, and then all of a sudden, everybody wanted a Frazetta on their tank. So I would do Frazetta, you know, uh, uh, covers. And then I started, after about, and a few of those, I says, now nah, I'm going to start doing original pieces. So after that, it just sort of took off. Uh, I did that for many years. Yeah. Uh, and but at the same time, I would do uh, windows for stores, uh, just like Mike. You know, somebody say, I need a, I need flyers. I need, I need uh, uh, wall murals. That we so basically, you just learn on the job. It's here, go for it. You know. So I just went to it, and then in. Uh, in the 90s, uh, when Mike was went to uh, into the button, uh, going into the uh, the computer game industry, I started doing illustration for OnSpec magazine. Right. And at the same time, I'm still doing the airbrush work on the trucks and cars and whatnot. And then I started working my way into OnSpec. I ended up as art director for a little while. And then from there, in the early 2000s, I started uh, doing. Uh, uh, Java games, art for okay. Java games, yeah. because what happened was once I started picking up the air, uh, the computer, I would have little epiphanies. I'd be working on a, on an airbrush piece on a on a truck, 
and all of a sudden something I was doing on the computers went, you know, the little light went on. So they started pushing each other. You know, it, it would one would improve the other, and then eventually I switched over to, to working on the computer games, and then uh, now I'm doing uh, mostly computer artwork. Oh, okay. Is that right? Okay. And now, Mike, your, your bio that we read... It, your lengthy bio on your website says you're you're focusing now on on oil. Mm-hmm. Why the switch? I mean, you, you worked in computers for a long time. You've you've done uh, what what was described as sort of packaged marketing design. Why the switch to uh, an analog medium, or the <laughs> focus on it anyway? Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, like like I said, when I first got into the industry, it was still pre-computer. Uh, when I first got hired at Pyrotech slash Bioware. I had used a Mac for about a year in college. um, And I didn't know anything about, this was pre-Windows basically even. So like DOS, you know, all the programs that we used were all self-proprietary made editors, like animation editor, 3D modeling editor. These were all actually homemade programs. They weren't out of the box. Um, and I couldn't deal with this. I couldn't deal with DOS text-based screens, typing in backslashes and semicolons. And like I had used a Mac a bit, I understood a desktop and icons and things like that. Um, but basically I ramped up to the computer pretty fast. You know, the the games industry is a hundred percent digital. You don't really sit in a cubicle in a company and, uh, paint with stinky oil paints and (laughs) on canvas and clean your brushes out and stink up the office. So, uh, I didn't do any analog art for 12, 13 years, you know, but before that was all analog, you know, all junior high, high school, college was all drawing and painting. Um, and then, so I guess I, I didn't really have a childhood like kids today, of being on the computer, you know, it, it wasn't the default state in my DNA. So um, I also, you know, really, I, I was never really actually into computer games. I never played them really much when I was a kid. Even at Bioware, honestly, I like never played the games. <laughs> Don't tell you didn't tell anyone that at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, not really much interest in computer games or sitting in front of the computer. I don't think it's natural to literally sit in front of the computer and uh, stare six inches away from something for your entire life. Um, And then, you know, after doing this for 13 years, my entire 13 years worth of labor can fit on a, you know, one gigabyte thumb drive, right? So there's no tangible product being created. Even though the labor is there, the time is there, the effort is there. There's nothing there. There's it's just ones and zeros, right? Yeah. So, um, the entire time I was at Bioware, uh, I did a fair bit of research on traditional medium, always in the back of my mind, knowing um, that's really what I wanted to do. I would get there eventually. So, um, read a lot of books, traveled to Europe numerous times, went through the museums very thoroughly like I literally have probably spent an entire week in the Louvre um, that's took, all I could spend uh, do yeah I, I know well, what you mean well you yeah. could but I did like yeah, literally I'm yeah I'm jealous but, yeah, okay. <laughs> but you, you left every now and then right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> every night yeah. uh, maybe went, went through all the museums of Europe like that and then took courses in traditional painting um, at Bioware they had like educational stipends so every year you would sort of accrue 25% or 50% of like the cost of like a course, you know, and there would be various uh, benefits that you could use. So f- about five years worth, I went, uh, flew to Toronto and literally like stayed in student dorms and took really high level painting courses at some specialized schools in Toronto. Um, there's some pretty famous, what are called atelier schools there. And, uh, so did all this kind of stuff when no one was watching, but put in, put in the effort. I mean, didn't just read books, but actually traveled, spent significant time and money. Um, so that when my time about Bioware came to an end, 
it was pretty easy to switch to oils because I had done tons of training. I had done lots of uh, like copies and technical reading and, and practice. So I hadn't really done fantasy art traditionally, but I had done sort of all the theory building and all the practice, um, all the schooling. Um, so when I left Bioware, there was a couple key things that sort of filled in knowledge gaps at that time. I went to something called the Illustration Masterclass, which started about, about five years ago. It's in Amherst, Massachusetts. So basically all the top people, uh, it's, it's staffed by, you know, some of the top illustrators in the industry, traditional guys like Boris Vallejo. Uh, he instructs there. Uh, he, you know, if you don't know Boris Vallejo, he's one of the iconic 1970s artists that everybody, you know, grew up watching. He's in his 70s, I think. Um, so there's a, there's a faculty of literally the, the world's best fantasy painters that teach a week-long course every summer there. Wow. And uh, you go there and you actually do a painting from start to finish. And so it's not just lectures, although there is lectures. Uh, you're working from like 9 a.m. to like 12 midnight every day uh, with sitting side by side of Boris Vallejo, watching him lay down paint on the canvas, listening to lectures on color theory, composition, business. Um, so I did that one summer. And for the past seven or eight years, I've been going to what's uh, a convention called IllixCon, which is actually going on right now. It's this weekend. It's in Pennsylvania at a museum. And it's all the, the best artists in the world in traditional paint working in the fantasy genre. There's like a museum show. So collectors from all around the world come and buy originals uh, from fantasy painters. Donato so, and Picasso and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Donato Giancola, uh, mm -hmm. again, um, Greg, or, yeah, Greg Hildebrandt. Yep. These are like iconic artists yeah. from the last 30 years. Mm. And so I've been going there for the last seven or eight years, um, meeting these artists, learning what people do, learning the business. Again, there's lectures, seminars, demonstrations. Um, so I've I basically gone to the source. I've left Edmonton, you know, every year and gone to different sources, whether it be a museum, a specific workshop, or, uh, you know, a, a symposium at a museum where these people the best in the world are gathered together. And, you know, you just get to, uh, you know, infuse yourself with those standards and you get to really, uh, you know, increase your knowledge base and, and not have to struggle with relearning everything from, you know, from the ground up. You don't mm -hmm. have to reinvent the wheel, you know. Right. So that's sort of the history of art is of people being taught in a, uh, in a mentorship um, setting with a master-student relationship, and that is kind of coming back in the modern age now with um, with these sorts of gatherings. So those few things have been key, and those have been the key ingredients for me taking my experience in illustrating on the computer now and being able to like transfer that to um, a totally different type of craft, but one that um, one that requires somebody to really show you the ropes. Um, if you walk into an art supply store, there's everything from markers to watercolor paints to, you know, metallic and glitter and crafty things. And where would you even begin if you wanted to get into painting? There's just so much options. Yeah. So the best thing you can do is find somebody that knows how to do it already and, you know, bounce off of what they're already doing. And so uh, the procedure came pretty fast because I didn't have to experiment because I happen to luck on the right sources of information. Mm. Um, so now I'm sort of at that point where um, I've gathered all these things and I can just chug away making work month after month. Wow. You mentioned um, that that sort of master-student relationship um, is making a bit of a comeback. Um, do you feel that that's partly because of the advent of things like social media and whatnot, that it's made the art world maybe a, a little, I don't want to say smaller, but it's made it more it's very small. accessible. Oh yes, uh, all you got to do is look up anybody that you might know by reputation on Facebook. Boom, click add friend, and you're getting 
you know, a slice of their life. You know, you're, right. yeah. you're seeing what they're doing on a day to day basis, getting photos of their studio. Uh, you can Skype call with people. You you get all this information of where people are going to be when. There's just so much more context now. Interviews like what we're doing right now. Um, and, you know, there's many aspects to this. Other aspects are, um, like, illustrators are actually not paid very well now. So a lot of artists are using education as a way to, uh, like, finance a part of their income stream. So By teaching. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of teaching uh, um, so the Illustration Masterclass, which I uh, mentioned, they actually now have another thing, which is an online version of that. Yeah, which I'm planning on doing. You're going to do yeah, that, the Smart see. School? Probably next year, yeah. Exactly. So you don't even have to leave Edmonton or wherever you live, and you can go online and talk to these guys you know, on Skype calls or mm -hmm. and get one-on-one one -on -one mentorships. So hmm. uh, whether it be financial or purely... Um, Purely the fact that people want to be connected and, and need to be, the community is very small and the information is readily available. And there's so many so many artists out there too. And you can, in different, with different styles and techniques, and you can basically almost pick and choose who's who you want to learn from, right? Mm -hmm. You know, exactly, yeah. exactly. So Jim, you mentioned earlier that you're you. Did the the enamel paint on the the motorcycle? Yeah, it was my first job, but after that, we was all it was all acrylics. Yeah, acrylic acrylic lacquers. And now you're getting into you're doing a lot more computer work. Is that the, yeah yeah? Is, is that still the case today? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it, I'm I'm basically taking what I've learned before from doing the airbrush, and I it's it's I had to get out of the 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 body shop. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, life, which is basically breathing paint fumes and diesel fumes and crawling around in dusty floors. Right. Climbing up and down ladders, painting, you know, uh, semis and whatnot, right? Right, right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean the, the end products are wonderful. Sure. I mean, the airbrush is, is just an incredible instrument. But uh, there's just, after a while, it's just, it's so much effort for the, for the, for the, uh, for the completed work. And the computers actually could do what that does and then some, right? Right. And I get to manipulate it a lot more. Um, when you're doing airbrush, basically it's like bang. It's like it, it, he, with, with Mike's oils, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Um, with, with the computer, basically I have a lot more options, which I'm enjoying right now. Right, right. right. Once, once I, I, I became hooked is what happened. Um, yeah. I mean, I started off when I was in high school, I played with oils. Basically, as I call it, playing. Uh, and I went from oils to acrylics. And uh, I mean, I've painted clothing. I've done uh, uh, body painting, all sorts of interesting things. But they weren't all that interesting. They were fun for a while, but nothing that I would want to continue doing uh, the same way I enjoy. Actually, I enjoyed doing airbrush. I did that for a few decades. Really? So I did that for quite a while. Wow. That, was, that was my main thing. Right, and the computer was just a side thing. Up, well, I started doing airbrush in in uh, in '74. That's why I picked it up, and uh, I did that straight up until the 2000. So quite a while, right? Yeah. So I basically I painted pretty much everything that you could paint, from milk cans to speed boats to anything you know. And then of course you know stores, windows, uh, ceilings. You know, murals, uh, all that sort. Oh, of thing. everything, anything that you could, you could, you could uh, illustrate. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, is once you're once you've put something, you know, down, you can't alter it, right? Yeah. And the thing is, is one of the reasons people ask me, why don't you have a tattoo, right? <laughs> I've designed tattoos as well. Yeah. Um, and I basically, if I had a tattoo, I would look at it about a week later. I want to add something to it. <laughs> I'm almost never satisfied with what I've done. Adding is of, easy on a tattoo. Well, exactly. Right. Well, a friend of mine, I was at a, I was doing a, I was at a shop here in the city, and I was painting a truck. And I'm about halfway through the truck, and it's it's uh, landscapes. I'm wrapping them all around the truck. And he, and he came up and he behind me. He says, "How do you know when you're done?" <laughs> How did you answer that question? Oh, my brain just went into a freeze for a second. And I says, I really don't know the answer to that. Hmm. I guess when it feels right. Yeah. The thing is, is, is um, uh, I'm almost never satisfied with, with what I've done. Yeah. So I always, I mean, I, could, I, I look at something I've done 10 years ago. 
I'd really like to change. I'd re so the thing is, is um, uh, I'm sort of addicted to the luxury of, in, of what the computer does. Is it's, it's paint that never dries. It's pencil that doesn't smudge. Uh, the paint doesn't smell. Uh, you know, I don't have linseed oil to smell, or and I don't have to. Uh, eat paint fumes, and I don't have to wear a respirator that you know that I sweat into, and and you know um, I don't have to wash my you know strip and shower and go through a de uh, decontamination every night. Right? Sounds really dramatic. Well, airbrush was like that. You yeah, know? I mean, I, you know, so. I mean, and sometimes I would drive home after painting, even with a respirator on. Uh, whereas I, I and I wouldn't want to have a you know a urine test because and I'd be. <laughs> driving home in my, you know, and I'm sort of flying, right, you know, down the Sherwood Park Freeway. So, yeah, so there's 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 certain things there that I, I don't mind, I don't really miss that much. Yeah. Although I do, you know, I still do airbrush work, right, um, uh, once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you, your bio speaks to the fact that you came here from Ontario. Yeah. And it sounds like you really like it here. And, you know, I like the people, yeah. 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 Is that what it is about Edmonton? It's well, it's part of it, yeah. 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 I put down roots here and I enjoy it, yeah. Yeah. In a market like Edmonton that sort of feels like it's described as Canada's fifth largest city, and it's often omitted uh, when anyone's talking about big cities in Canada anyway, Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto, Calgary. How difficult is it to do the kind of work you guys want to do to get it out to audiences outside of the city. Is that a big challenge for you being in the Edmonton market? For what we're doing, for what I'm doing, yes. For the, the book covers and, you know, and posters, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But for Airbrush, when I, when I first came out here, um, the largest car dealership in Canada was Crosstown Motors. Really? Huh. And it was just, it's huge. So basically the, the, the first work I did here was, was uh, wrapping murals around uh, their vans, right? I would do crank out a van at night kind of thing. It was just like insane. Wow. Um, wow. Just the upper half, though, not the whole thing, just sure. the upper half. But, you know, and I was picking out, you know, weird. But the thing is, is Edmonton, I thought Edmonton was a, basically a, a cowboy town when I first came out here. I was, mm -hmm. I was raised across the river from Detroit, right? Yeah. I uh, thought of myself as very urbane and cultured when I came out here. And, uh, and out here, I, I came out well. First per person I talked to was, yeah, have you ever heard of Led Zeppelin? Yeah, I like him. This is the kind of, I'm thinking, oh, I'm in Edmonton here. So I started doing murals, and one of the first murals uh, I did was was cowboy-themed murals, you know, oil-themed murals. I think that's what would sell out here. That makes sense. Yeah, and I, they had a bunch of my artwork on the lot, and uh, they gave me a yellow van, a lemon yellow van. What are you doing on it? Well, I did Alice in Wonderland. I did one side, I did the caterpillar on the mushroom, and on the other side, I did the Mad Hatter. And I wrapped the whole thing up in vines and, you know, uh, uh, big sort of pumpkin-like leaves, etc. Very psychedelic colors, a uh, bright purple, uh, you know, caterpillar, and, and uh, Amanita mushroom, of course, you know. It's very psychedelic. And then, when that sat on the lot with the other ones, that was the first one to sell. You're kidding. And I went, okay, there's something else going on here besides cowboy hats, you know, and, and uh, Alberta beef, you know what I mean, and, <laughs> and oil. So I, I started looking around. Uh, I came out here with a couple of fellows. Uh, one was a painter, one was a salesman. Um, I quit, I went on my own, and I started doing motorcycles and, and I built up a business doing that. So I was started. I would take trips to Vegreville, Vancouver. So I was flying okay. all over, um, over Alberta, Prince. You know, I'd go to Prince Albert for to paint. You know, a, a, a rig or whatever. So I, I got a. I got to meet a lot of people, mm -hmm. and then of course I started going to the, the conventions once I once I started doing the illustrations, black and white illustrations for Onspec. Mm -hmm. Like the first illustrations I did for them, were were mm -hmm. were ink and paint. Right, the covers were all, uh, they were, actually I did airbrush covers, right? But I mixed acrylics, uh, uh, when I was using lacquers, I would mix brushwork with, with, which was unheard of, with airbrush, yeah. right? Because uh, one th beautiful thing about lacquer is that you could melt hardened lacquer with lacquer thinners. So basically you could use um, 
it was like using uh, uh, watercolors, but they're opaque. And so you could actually have a palette in an air, uh, so I'm using, on one side I've got my air, my, my, my handbrush, yeah. and I've got my airbrush. So I, I'm doing, I'm building things. So it was, it was, it was a, my, my technique was basically different than everybody else's. Everybody else is cutting all these friskets and, and whatnot. And to me, that was just too much stress, right? Yeah. I, I, I prefer to, to brush stroke and airbrush together. Mm. And, uh, and I, I tend to do things best backwards. I'm self-taught, basically. I didn't have the luxury of art school because um, uh, I was wasting my time in sciences. But anyways, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, all of that is up here. And it comes out in my work, right. so you know. So it sounds like you carved out a bit of a niche for yourself with the the way your approach to art. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's how we do it. I mean, Mike's carved out his, and he's beautifully, wonderfully, he's yeah. just you know, just incredible work. So yeah. So Mike, for you, how hard is it to do what you do from Edmonton? It's actually quite easy, uh, but it but it wasn't to begin with. So when I left Bioware, I had the better part of a year when I didn't have any contacts, I didn't have any jobs, I didn't know what to do, I didn't know mm -hmm. where to go. You know, it's like, if I asked you, okay, go be an artist right now. You know? uh, yeah. Even if you had the skill, what would you do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, look in the yellow pages. Uh, I'm going through that myself right <laughs> now as well, yeah. And, and these cons that I went to in the States, uh, you know, they had, they had a contingent of not just artists, but of publishers and art directors and, and people that were the links to jobs as well. So, and, and not just those people, you know, other people that were working had information. And, you know, because I said the community is actually really tiny, once you get a foothold into people and information, everything unfolds quite fast. So yeah. uh, I met the art director for Blizzard like the first con I went to, and I've been doing World of Warcraft art since. So I basically just showed him my portfolio. He was like, uh, so how long does this take to do this? And I'm like, uh, two and a half days. And he's like, here's my card. And that was it. Wow. <laughs> and I was like the only guy at the entire convention that you know he gave his card to. But So it's a matter of if you can do the work, and then you meet the guy that has the work, boom. That's yeah, all you need to do. serendipitous, right? Exactly, to, well, to a degree, right? To a degree, but like we said, the information you yourself in the right the place information too. is there. If you yeah. go on the website and you see this art director from this company is going to be here, buy a plane ticket, you're there too. Like, oh yeah, there's serendipity, yeah. but there's also you know specific logic and targeting. If you want to do that, you can do that. Yeah. So, um, like the big trick is just being able to do the work. You know, yeah. that's a lot of people are concerned about promotion and getting their name out and building up and this and that but you know you can get the work quite easily if if you've got the product that people want so yeah. you know it, once i made those links it was it was fairly easy yeah. and then it's just a snowball you know so it it is a it is a who you know industry in some ways yeah or who you can get connected to i think so yeah, yeah. um like like jim is jim is saying He's got a niche, and the niche is because there's certain demand in car dealerships and type of clientele here mm -hmm. on the prairies. Um, now, if I want to do Blizzard or Star Wars or Magic the Gathering artwork, you know, I have to meet those exact people. Those people aren't walking down the street here. Those companies right. don't exist here. So, uh, you know, you have to make those connections. Um, but you have to have the work that, you know, makes sense for them to use you. You have to be as good or better as, you know, not as good, but better than their current crop or the options they have. Right. So yeah. why choose a new guy if they're currently have a full Rolodex, right? Yeah. So that's the thing is there's a lot of people that think it's the connections are are the cru the crux, but it's not. It's, it's the work. The it, connections help, but you need to be able to show them something yeah yeah well yeah because you have to fit their brand you have to fit their brand but again with things like facebook if you have like spectacular artwork uh and you had five pieces of spectacular artwork uh it would take you 10 minutes to friend you know 100 artists on facebook or 100 art directors and within 10 minutes they could see those five spectacular pieces of art and you could get a reputation in a week. Like, yeah. That's how fast it can be. That was going to be my next question is just how, how much, how easier, or sorry, how much easier has social media made uh, finding opportunities for you guys? Are you, are you using it a lot? 
I have been, yeah, yeah. myself. And has it, has it yielded new opportunities yep. for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is uh, two publishers, yeah. Great. Sure, yeah. That's awesome. And you too, Mike? I'm not sure. Like, I sort of got the work before, you know, before being linked on social media. So okay. I... It hasn't helped me as much. I don't really use it in a promotional sense. But if you expand the definition of social media to mean your work exists on your own website, another website, a website that um, that gathers well, a whole bunch of well, artists traffic, in one spot. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, if social media extends to internet traffic, period, then yeah. I mean, back in the day, your only other option would be to actually print things out, stick it in an envelope, and put it in the mail. Yeah. And the slowness of that process, mm. you know, makes it impossible. And how do you, how do you know that, you know, that address is correct? That art director still works there. How do you know really Been who you're talking? That. And yeah. postage cost a fortune now. So, who would want to do that? But some of my <laughs> recent clients have, you know, they they find me. I've gotten some really good jobs because they've seen my work on a different website that is a general link of portfolios of artists in the industry or whatever so um, I, I would say the the pull aspect is probably greater than the push aspect mm. pull being um, like people finding you versus you targeting and convincing people right right because one is actually like takes effort and the other is um, the other is passive yeah like pull is passive so if I have my work on 10 popular websites that aggregate like top fantasy artists um, and guys are looking through there, then I don't, that takes no effort on my behalf. I don't have to um, post new updates and everything, you know, so yeah. it's, I think today the, the barrier of entry is super high for quality, but super low for, um, for the sort of uh, like, logistics that you would have to do to get work right so i see what you're saying the barrier is low for everybody and that makes the standards really high because they can be much more choosy um but it is very easy to get people's attention so well, and it might it must feel really good to be sought out as well right because it landing a job that you pursued is is good but somebody offering you a job because of the work that you put out must feel particularly good yeah yeah, but, you know, there's so many artists out there. There's so many good artists there's, that you um, think you're hot shit because somebody <laughs> emailed you. There's thousands of other artists getting emails from the same company, different companies. Like yeah. The human race is evolving, and one of the ways we're evolving is creatively. Yeah. And uh, you've noticed the, 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 the proliferation of musical artists. The same thing's happening in the visual arts. Mm. It's, all it's just all you need is a computer. Yeah. There are so many yeah. guys in Russia and Brazil and China yeah. and India, you know, Braz in, yeah. in their the tiny, tiny East, cramped Australia. apartment. Australia, yeah. Just cranking it out. Yeah. Wow. Well, it was really interesting talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Now, uh, with our guests, there's also uh, an additional segment that we uh, do for for all of the people who join us on the show. It is Adam's favorite part of our show yes and it's is it called painful? it is it's highly painful it's <laughs> really demeaning <laughs> uh oh it's it's usually called the fast 15 I did the preamble, so I let you say it. Yeah, the I, fast I, I 16. see a list on your computer there. So, so yeah. the way this works is really simple, is, is we go through the, this list of very quick questions with all of our guests. Because there's two of you, we'll do, you know, Mike, Jim, Mike, Jim. It's, and we ask our guests all the same questions, oh, so we okay. can get uh, the same pool of answers from everybody. Except for at the end, when we ask wildcard questions tailored to you. Exciting, right? Interesting. Okay, I, th I thought so. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, Fascinating. I'm, so we're going to do the, the Fast 15 with the two of you. Starting, uh, We'll start with Mike, and then we'll go to Jim, Mike, Jim, Mike, Jim. All right? You ready? Sounds good. Okay, here we go. The Fast 16. Uh, Mike, your favorite food? Potato chips. Jim, your favorite color? Red. Mac PC or Linux? PC. Uh, 
Jim, dogs or cats? Cats. Mike, coffee or tea? Coffee. Jim, your favorite holiday? I don't have one. Uh, Halloween. <laughs> awesome. Mike, your favorite sport? Mm, UFC. Jim, your favorite pastime? Reading. Mike, uh, favorite show to binge watch on Netflix? I don't have Netflix. There you go. <laughs> he won't binge watch anything. That's a good answer. Uh, Jim, a favorite movie? Army of Darkness. Mike, Mike, favorite video game? <laughs> like I said, I don't really play video games, but I do play Hearthstone because that's what I'm working on now. Right. And it is actually really good. I'd probably play it even if I wasn't working on it. Talking me into it. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Almost got me there. Really? Almost. Just, just a little while longer. It's free. I'll see. I'll see. <laughs> yep. Now, Jim, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Invisibility. Uh, that was mine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Every time someone says invisibility. I, 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 that, that's less sketchy, yeah. I think. Uh, and finally, on to our wild card questions, starting with you, Mike. If you were stuck with one medium to use in your artwork from now on, what would you want it to be? Oils. Yeah. Nah, that was an easy one. <laughs> what do, let's, let's ask Jim that question. What about you, Jim? What do you think? <laughs> the idea, he shudders. I get, I've got three. Uh, it's, it's just pencil and paper. Wow. Pencil yeah, that would be my second or no first. Seriously. Yeah. Awesome. I, 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 I like the computer. It's, a, it's fun, but uh, I still scribble a lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Doodle. Jim, if you were stuck with only one subject matter that you could do art around, like one, like Star Wars or, 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 or alien artwork or something, what would you want it to be? Dragons. Really? All right. How about you? Women or dragons? <laughs> Women or <laughs> dragons? Split so, the difference, female yeah, dragons. Uh, so, yes, female dragons. We'll just segue into that's a nice segue into the next question, Mike. Uh, your last wild card question: What's one of your favorite characters to to illustrate? Ooh. Barbarian. Yeah, right on. And you know what? What the hell? Let's ask you the same question. Yeah. Cthulhu. Yes, actually, right now I'm on, I'm on I'm on a Cthulhu kick right now. I actually so, so on Jim's Facebook page, uh, which you could find. <laughs> At Jim Beveridge, art by Jim Beveridge. Oh, come on. Come James on. F., yeah. James F. Beveridge. You've got a lot of artwork where you've got uh, uh, jack-o'-lanterns. That, th That's the second one, yeah. It's but it's that it's time lovely. of year. It's perfect, It's that though. time of year, so though. So a jack-o'-lantern Cthulhu. Well, I, yeah, I have one of those, actually. Really? Here? Yeah, uh, online. Oh. Uh, yeah, just go to my... my uh, Facebook page? Yeah, either one. Well, Jim, Jim does a lot of work, so you know he's doing work for there it is. whatever Keep going. There you go. Yeah. Right there. Yeah, that's awesome. Just so you, the home listener right now, cannot in any way see what we're looking there at. No, but it's amazing. but it's amazing. Look, James F. Beveridge up on Skulls Facebook. too is another one. There I you mean. go. I, I'm I, the human anatomy is fascinating. Cool. Yeah. Well, that when that, I first started when I first started doing artwork, when I was a kid, that was the the female form was I think maybe both of ours. Our first subject matter. Mm -hmm. It has to do with puberty. It was mine too. Happens. It was mine too. You know, and I don't um, even draw. You know, when <laughs> the, the first the first uh, watercolor I did uh, in grade seven, I did a, I did a bar style. My buddies in class. I was telling this story earlier. Uh, my buddies in class uh, teased me into doing a nude in art class in grade seven. <laughs> oh my God. So I did your bar style Vargas sort of, yeah, uh, blonde. Mm -hmm. You know, you could tell. Nude. And um, as my uh, my buddies were across the room, you know, chuckling and snickering to themselves, as I was doing this, this painting, this watercolor, all the girls came up and asked, how, how do you know how to do that? That's, that's pretty good. And I went, I like this attention. <laughs> so that, uh, yeah. Basically, that's that's what that was one of the the, the main impetus. I you know for I mean I enjoyed doing art before I was you know I, I was a big fan of, of Lewis Carroll's and I would illustrate uh, you know that Jabberwock and whatnot at home and and I had a buddy of mine that a little Jewish buddy of mine in in, uh, in public school uh, who whose hero was <laughs> I 
don't know how to say, was Hitler. Oh, wow. So I would actually draw portraits out of Mein Kampf, which I was reading at the time, <laughs> for his room. <laughs> Although, and his parents allowed it. It was interesting. But so the thing is, is, is I was always doing something drawing yeah. as a kid. But the the that form was basically the the, the, the human form has always been fascinating. Yeah. You know, whether it's barbarians or princesses or whatever, it's always been fun. Cool. You know. Doing art to get attention from the ladies. There you go. There you go. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time it's just uh, to the spend attention. with us. We're, we're <laughs> yeah. good with now, attention from anybody, really. Yeah. Uh, before we go away from you, where can people find you online if they want to see some of your art? Yeah. I am uh, www.sassart.com and sassart.blogspot.com and on Facebook, Mike Sass Illustration. Cool. How about you, Jim? Uh, James F. Beverage uh, uh, on Facebook, The Art of James F. Beverage on Facebook. Uh, James F. Beverage on Twitter uh, and James F. Beverage or jamesbeverage.com. That's I D G E, not A G E. Yeah, and we'll have all those linked on theunknownstudio.ca so you can check them out. Yeah, my Brandon? name is easily misspelled <laughs> constantly. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 122. Our guests, Jim Beveridge and Mike Sass. Pre-production by Adam Rosenhart. Post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Do you have that kendo attitude? Like like a can-do attitude? Yes. Except with a sword? With martial arts. Do you have it? Yes, I do. Do you want to try a different one? Sure. <laughs>